Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about GoldenEye, starring Pierce Brosnan, Sean Bean, Isabella Skorupko, Famke Jansen, Judy Dench, and directed by Martin Campbell. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A.? And this is Arnie, and no more foreplay. I am so excited because we are a golden eye. The first Bond film I ever saw in theaters. Why? Because it stars Pierce Brosnan. And I have such a man crush on Pierce Brosnan. I have since I was a child watching Rummings and Steel. Wanted to be Pierce Brosnan. I think that he and Bond go together like gin and vermouth. And it is a match made in heaven. I can't wait to talk about it. And this is a very special episode of Now Playing, where we confess our innermost secrets. I have to confess mine as well. I have a man crush on Pierce Brosnan, too. I have said this for years, that in my mind, when I picture James Bond, what does he look like? He looks like Pierce Brosnan. When this guy was cast as James Bond in 1987, and when he lost it to Timothy Dalton, I was so excited. In my mind, he was James Bond, and he finally got a second chance at the role of a lifetime. And when they announced he was doing this, and when they first saw the movie, I was so excited that, yes, Pierce Brosnan is James Bond, finally! And I can't wait to talk about this movie with you as well. What's funny is it almost didn't happen. I remember reading about this and kind of having watched the Bonds I had, I was very interested in all the articles that were published between 90 and 95 about the attempts to get Bond back off the ground. And I remember that they were talking about going really radical. Sharon Stone was up for the role of James Bond. Wesley Snipes! Yes! (laughs) Always bet on Bond. Well, they went a little more traditional with the casting. I had heard that he wasn't allowed to play Bond. I know we talked a little bit about the Living Daylights about it, but what I had read at the time wasn't just that his Remington Steel contract had precedence on his time, but that actually when he signed on to be Remington Steel, his contract said he could never play Bond. And eventually Eon Productions had to pay NBC to get them to release that because they did not want Remington Steel to be James Bond. That kind of changed later on when Steel's ratings were flagging in the late 80s. But initially, they wanted to hold the monopoly on Pierce Brosnan, and then it happened. I think I'm the only one here that's not a member of the Remington Steel fan club. I don't really know Pierce Brosnan. I think the only things I would have seen him in up to the point of this movie's release was Lawnmower Man, because Arnie made me go to that. And I saw it because Remington Steel was in it. <laughs> And some Coke commercial that actually played like a audition reel for James Bond. He's on a train and people are trying to assassinate him while he chugs a soda. 
I had the opposite effect to Pierce Brosnan. I feel like he is a little bit of a mannequin. I guess he's the prettiest of all the men that have played James Bond. But to me, it kind of works against him. It kind of makes him look inauthentic, kind of like a artificial James Bond. I'm not sure that I get human off of him. And so I've never really been drawn to him or this iteration. I have skipped half of the Brosnan films and only saw the other two at the insistence of my mother, the James Bond fan. I would have skipped all of them gladly. I had no interest in Bond at this point and certainly no interest in Pierce Brosnan. What I remember, Stuart, one of the reasons his contract for Remington Steel was renewed was because of all the publicity about him signing on as James Bond and that Diet Coke was part of that. We saw that commercial to death back then, and that was one of the reasons he lost the role, in fact. It wasn't an audition piece. It was a, hey, I'm the new James Bond. See, if it wasn't for Remington Steel, quite honestly, there might not be a now playing today. I was so obsessed with Remington Steel. It was the first crime drama I watched. It did end up getting me into other shows like Hunter and Law and Order and things like that. But Remington Steel was my first. And the thing about Remington Steel was every episode was based upon a classic film. And Remington Steele himself, if that was his real name and it wasn't, was a film buff. And about three quarters of the way through the movie, he'd realize the movie they were in and say the title, the year, and the two film stars. I've mentioned many times on this James Bond retrospective series, the Leonard Maltin guides I had as a kid. I got them because I was trying to memorize years of movies so I could be like Remington Steele. And whenever they'd come up, I would be the douchebag who'd go, oh yes, Lawnmower Man, 1992, Jeff Fahey, Piers Brosnan, and try to do that every time. I still hold that against you. Maybe one day we'll pull that one out for some retrospective. I used to do that for Dateline NBC when they used to say, what year is this? Whenever they showed the movie, I knew exactly what year it was. (laughs) Not for Remington Steele, but anyway. So, Stuart, I would think, though, all three of us are on the same age, and the hype around James Bond coming back in 1994, 1995 was considerable, considering that a lot of people thought that the character, as this movie calls out, was a relic of the Cold War, that there's no reason to revive this character after the hiatus, because after the last movie, of course, so much had happened in the world that it changed. And when they brought Pierce Brosnan in for the role, that gave me the impression Yeah, they can do this right with this guy. He gave me confidence that they can bring James Bond back. This casting was that perfect for me. Well, for me at this point, keep in mind, I was in film school. I was trying to seek out much more alternative movies, indie movies. That's where my focus was. I didn't want to see franchises. I didn't want to watch Star Trek movies. I didn't want to watch James Bond movies. I didn't want to watch slasher movies. Any of the things that I had consumed in the 80s, no more. I was at a different era in my life, and I was rejecting the things that I used to love. And the idea of bringing James back, I think I was on the side of thinking, why bother? Times have changed. Honestly, I couldn't have told you one thing about GoldenEye. My only association with this movie is playing the video game. That's the only thing I know about it. And it's turned me against video games because, God damn it, I got my ass handed to me by my friends as we tried to do that four-person shooter thing. Oh, my God. I know this is considered a classic of the video game genre, but it was miserable. I realized I could not handle all the levels of controls, and I just walked away. I never played another video game again after this. (laughs) I'll stick with my Miss Pac-Man, I guess. 
I never played the game just because it was for consoles. I feel shooters are best with a keyboard, but I've heard good things. It's tremendous. I loved playing it, but I didn't play very much. I was a Halo guy way back after this game, but of course, GoldenEye made Halo possible in a lot of ways. So it's a lot of fun to play, but yeah, it was intense playing with these guys who play all the time. You cannot play casually <laughs> with people who know those maps. You know, all that said, I was happy for Pierce Brosnan to be here. My friends and I wanted to see this movie, but... I rolled my eyes at the title. I'm like, oh my god, a Bond film, golden, body parts, can it be more derivative? I never thought twice about it, Arnie, actually. I do know that it's the name of Ian Fleming's mansion, the place in Jamaica where he wrote all of the James Bond novels. So that's where they got the title from. And they're out of titles, right? At this point, there are no more Ian Fleming books or short stories that they could call a movie. They have to come up with something. That's not exactly true. They haven't used Risico. Property of a Lady, 007 in New York, <laughs> which they won't. <laughs> yeah, all right. These are some hot properties. And at this point, Quantum of Solace, they hadn't used either. I guess we should mention, though, we said a lot has happened since James Bond had hit the theaters. It was the longest time that James Bond had been off the screens. 1989 was the last James Bond movie. This is 1995 when this was released. There were some legal issues with the European distribution rights. And on top of that, they had the screenwriter die. They were going to come out with a movie called The Property of a Lady, 1991. I think we mentioned that last time. With Dalton starring. But because of all the legal problems, by 1994, he backed out of the role. And that's how Pierce Brosnan got in. And so I remember back when Back to the Future was on videotape and they said to be continued. It seemed like forever until 1989 came to the sequel. For me, it was like that with James Bond. It seemed like forever until the next James Bond movie came. And so when 1995 came around and with Pierce Brosnan, I was ready to go. And not only that, I mean, it should be pointed out, not only had it taken an extraordinary long time for the franchise to pull it together, the longest gap in the franchise's history, I mean, even longer than what it's taken between Quantum and Skyfall, the world had really changed. I mean, James Bond is a symbol of the Cold War, and the USSR had crumbled in the time between License to Kill and Goldeneye. And what's cool about this movie, I think, is that it's the elephant in the room. They have to address it, and and they have constructed a plot that is all about Bond facing up to the fact that he may be a relic in this new era of spy movies. I think that's a great place to pick up with it. Well, they kind of tried to modernize Bond with the Dalton ones. We talked about the PC bit there, trying to make him an 80s man. Here, they definitely just were like, he's a throwback in a 90s world. And we can discuss whether that worked or not. Yep, I think that's your cue, Arnie. What's the plot? A Russian satellite named Goldeneye has been hijacked thanks to rogue programmer Boris and traitorous General Oromov. New MI6 head M, now played by Judy Dench, sends James Bond to find it, and Bond has a grudge against the general for killing Agent 006 nine years earlier. But in his investigation, Bond discovers 006, real name Alec Trevelin, is alive and well and behind the entire plot. The son of Russian Cossacks betrayed by England, Alec plans to use Goldeneye to set off an electromagnetic pulse over London, crushing the English economy and, thanks to Boris, also stealing millions of dollars. Bond and Russian satellite programmer Natalia Simonova track Alec involving a tank chase to his base in Cuba, where they stop the plan and kill Alec, his henchwoman Zena, on a top, and even Boris before making their escape and credits roll. Wow, that was very, very concise. It was. Very impressive. Yeah, very impressive. It was a straightforward plot. No longer are these two stories smashed together like a bad car wreck. Instead, this is a straightforward, albeit 
quite predictable plot that doesn't have all the twists and turns and yet keeps all the chases and intrigue. It was the simplest plot summary to date, despite the best efforts of Casino Royale. You know, I was talking to my wife about this plot because we watched the movie together. And she said, is anyone really going to be convinced that this guy is dead? I mean, come on. You see a guy die in the beginning of the movie. You don't see him die. You know he's coming back. And I'm like, of course you do. You see his name in the credits, like second or third credit. You know he's going to get somehow back in the movie. I hear what you're saying about very predictable about that plot point. I mean, unless you're saying about something else in the movie, because honestly, it is obvious, but that's the whole point of the plot. It's the whole point of it making it personal for Bond for the first time in God knows how long. Well, I guess Revenge was the plot of License to Kill. Yeah, the very last one. <laughs> Let me rephrase that, but the point still stands. Usually it's not a personal thing for Bond, and that's a hallmark of the Brosnan era, that it's always some sort of personal thing. And I think that's the point, that they are acknowledging right away that, yes, he's still alive, and you all know that, but Bond doesn't know it, and we're going to see how he reacts. As the person that is not familiar with this story at all and had no idea where it was going, yes, when I see Sean Bean's name in the credits, and I see Sean Bean being killed here in the opening Chemical Factory battle, I know Sean Bean is not not dead. What I don't know at this point is whether he is going to be turned into a villain or if he has been a villain all this long and kind of led Bond into a trap. It could play either way and I'm leaning towards the latter, but that's what I'm trying to figure out. I know Sean Bean will come back in a bad guy role, but I don't know if he will ultimately be the bad guy or someone that is being manipulated by a bigger bad. That's the only thing I would say that is mysterious about this. Otherwise, yeah, it's a pretty obvious ruse. I remember watching a movie a few years prior to this called Sneakers with Robert Redford. And in the opening scene, they have two guys. One goes to jail, one does not. And Robert Redford, many years later, says that he died in prison. And Ben Kingsley's name is in the credits. And you don't see Ben Kingsley until an hour into the movie. That's the first time I remember consciously saying to myself, hey, wait a second. Ben Kingsley hasn't showed up yet. And that guy died in the first time. We didn't see him really die in prison. That guy's still alive. And it's about this time when, Stuart, you said you were in film school and you're trying to get into different kinds of movies. It's around this time where I couldn't watch a movie and turn my brain off trying to figure out how things work. You know what I mean? So with Sean being in the beginning, regardless if you know who he is or not, when you don't see someone die in the opening scene who's best friends with the lead character, more than likely he's coming back and he'll be there and he's probably going to be bad. It's a trope of movies throughout the 90s. And if I go backwards beyond that, I'm sure it's in the 80s and 70s somewhere too. But this seems like a real 90s kind of plot to me. I thought 006 died in Living Daylights during the paintball exercise in Gibraltar anyway. I mean, I'm not here to see whether 006 is going to make it. I am very curious about how they are going to introduce Brosnan. That's what I'm here to see. I've been very particular about how each movie launches a new Bond. In what way do they show him? You know, will he be jokey like Moore? Will he be suave like Connery? Will he be in a dangerous action moment like Dalton? I did not think they'd be dangling him him over a toilet. I gotta say, that was a curveball I just did not see coming at all. Wow. Why do this? Well, he was bungee jumping, and that's because it was the 90s, but really, that's not the introduction. The introduction's, of course, the gun barrel sequence, and I love him in the gun barrel sequence. He just walks up, turns, and shoots. He's not ducking. He is very matter-of-fact. He gives my favorite gun barrel performance of the series thus far. And then the bungee jumping? Well, it was the 90s. Who didn't bungee jump, right? Well, actually, Arnie, you're dead on about this. I love that, too. It's intense. It's right for the character, and you get right into it. And then when you don't really see Bond, and they did this again. They did it with Lazenby. They did it with Dalton. You don't see who it is. You see a guy running. We're thinking it's Bond. 
He does the bungee jump. It's an amazing stunt, the longest bungee jump at the time in history. And then you see his eyes when he's doing the laser. You don't see Bond yet. So the first time you see his face, yeah, he's upside down making a toilet joke. But he's also making a quip. So you have a really intense guy up front, and then you have a quip, and then he hits him right away. And that's exactly the balance that Brosnan is given right away when you open this movie, the intense guy who can make the joke. Yeah, I don't think Dalton would have agreed to this scene. I mean, they may have wanted to dump Dalton down the toilet. I don't think Dalton would have done it this way. And I agree. This, to me, feels like a straddling between Moore's smirkiness and Connery's suave dashingness. I mean, I feel like Brosnan is going to try and walk that tightrope and please the fans of both of those eras of Bond. And how he does with it? Well... Better than I would have been willing to give him credit back in the 90s. I, like I said, was not a fan. I saw him as just being kind of a generic guy and just not having really any edge. I think that he does pretty well here. I think that Brosnan has a pretty good intro as a credible Bond. I mean, I think he's got better acting chops than Lazenby. I don't think he is as dangerous as Dalton, but I think for what he does, it's okay. My problem with him is that they intentionally play him cold. He even has a line towards the end where he says cold keeps him alive. But it also keeps us removed from you. He's the one Bond where I feel like I understand him least as a character. He's in many ways the most generic Bond. That's what the woman says to him in response. That keeps you alone. And then the forceful kiss comes back. I think that he has some of the intensity that Dalton has. You said he's straddling between Connery and Moore. I think he also has a dash of Dalton in him, too. I think he's combining all three aspects into giving a character. I think the coldness is part of who James Bond is. I think you could see he's emotionally hurt when he's talking to M about the Trevelyan thing and Oromoff and the whole thing. It's a lot there, I think, that he's giving to the performance. I think I disagree with you, Stuart. I think there's a little more there. They do. They give him this wounded past. I'm wondering why that is. I find it strange that he's got this chip on his shoulder. Is it because his friend got killed? Are we supposed to think that it's 006's death that has made him this cold, brutal guy? Or is it the fact that the world has left him behind nine years later? Why is he this aloof cat? I couldn't figure that out. I took it it was Alex's death. He and Alex were supposed to be good friends, and that permanently scarred him, and that's why he was really excited for a chance for revenge. And I like this James Bond that way, because I don't want James Bond to be a 70s sap. I, in the 90s, want James Bond to be a badass action hero. And being cold allows me to believe in him as a badass action hero. I am totally with Brosnan during this performance. But you know what? When you say cold killer, I think Dalton or I think Craig. To me, Brosnan doesn't have that intensity. I can't quite figure out what he's doing here, but he's not bad. I can tell you that much. Throughout the movie, he's not a problem for me, but I can't say that I'm endeared to him either. It's a strange relationship to start off with, but I do like him in this opening. I am willing to follow him on his future adventures. I disagree. I'm going to say it right now. I'll put my cards on the table. My favorite Bond so far. Need to go back and re-see the Craig ones. I've only seen one. But this movie tells me right now, this gives me the Bond I've wanted for apparently over 30 years at this point. It is a perfect combination. It's not too goofy a performance like Moore was want to give. It's not 
a I don't want to be here performance like Connery gave in his later films. The closest second is Connery in Never Say Never Again. But Brosnan nails it. I think the experience of playing basically a James Bond character, a British agent with a secret past and a double life in Remington Steel for so many years has made him feel perfectly at home in the skin of a secret agent with a license to kill. And perhaps it's my affinity for him from the 80s, but everything he does here works for me. Every emotion he plays, I am with him on. It's like James Bond dragged me. It's like watching someone hit on the nose ideas about what James Bond should be. It's an impersonation almost. And so I can't go with you. I disagree. I think he's fucking tough. I think this guy is badass, and it's told to me in the very moment in those opening credits where not only is he smart enough to hide behind the gas canisters, but dear God, the best stunt in a James Bond film to date, possibly the best stunt I've ever seen in a film, a guy rides a motorcycle off a cliff, jumps off the motorcycle, and lands in an airplane which is also plummeting? That's amazing! First of all, I also want to say that I disagree with your intensity comment, Stuart. I think Arnie's dead on about his intensity. I think Brosnan has the intensity he needs, and he also knows the right time and how to make the joke. I think he's the perfect balance. I'm right there with Arnie on Brosnan. I want to say that for the record. I am a big fan of what he's doing in this movie, big time. Second thing, Arnie, though, I love the stunt, too. I think it's really cool, but we don't see the full stunt. We don't see the guy off the cliff on the motorcycle getting into the plane. We see insert shots of Brosnan and et cetera, et cetera. So for me, the best stunt that we've seen like this, I would say the Union Jack parachute jump or even the Moonraker opening when we see all those stuff falling. I think it's a really great idea and it's a really cool concept. And I love this opening scene with that great stunt at the end. But I would have preferred to see him actually go all the way down to the plane before I would call it the best stunt we've ever seen in the series. Yeah, it's not a stunt when they're cutting around it and using special effects, but I'll grant you, we're splitting hairs. It's a great action moment. It's a great opening. He has been really gifted a great way to kick off the franchise. I think all the bungee stuff, all of this fighting stuff, the shootout with General Oromov, all of this stuff, I'm hooked. I'm not sure how I feel about him, and that will continue throughout the movie, but I'm sure I want to find that conclusion down the road. I want to keep going. And yeah, it's a great opener. Let me give you an example of how the balance of this movie is working out. In this intense scene, when he's behind that cart with the gas canisters, they throw in a squeaky wheel on the cart like we have at the supermarkets or whatever. That is a great example of how an intense moment can have an underline of humor. And that is what they're doing with Brosnan and Bond in this movie. Yeah, it's a great opening, only marred by Tina Turner's breathy voice in a terrible song. Written by you too. Well, I should say Bono and The Edge, not all four of them. <laughs> Apparently the other two have the talent because this song is miserable. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Tina. I love Tina. Thunderdome, Private Dancer, 80s Tina is my Tina. But 1995 Tina, she had a little bit of a comeback. She had simply the best around the Olympics and then they made the Ike and Tina movie. But, oof, Tina, no, not right for Bond. Not Proud Mary, Arnie? Yeah, she had like 20 years before What's Love Got to Do With It, but whatever. She's, <laughs> she's a legend, and you know what? They're just calling it out here. If the title of the movie didn't make you think about Goldfinger, obviously Bono and Tina are going to press that point, stamp it into your ears. You can't not hear this song and not hear traces of Goldfinger. They're going after Shirley Bassey big time with this song. It's a big gambit. And you know what? This song does such a great job of instantly grabbing me that dun 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 the production all of this this swirlingness 
dress around it. I get so excited at the start of this song. It's always so surprising to find out that it ends up kind of not going off, kind of going nowhere. Like, where's the chorus in this song? Yeah, it's a pretty bland song. It has some wonderful aspects. I like what they're doing with all the symbolism in the actual credits, and it's a nice homage to Maurice Binder. That's great, but I find this song a very generic James Bond song. Maurice Binder is the guy who's been doing all these credit sequences for the past 16 movies. He's the guy who's designed everyone from Dr. No up to License to Kill. The man passed away at the end of License to Kill till now, so he could not do another Bond film, so this person who did this one, and his name is not coming to me, he did it as an homage in the style of James Bond opening credit scenes. He did it better than that other guy ever did, because this guy went total frontal topple nudity. Binder did a few nude shots and others, but I like it too. It's a really nice scene. I just don't like the song. I want to be clear. I think the song is okay. You guys are saying that it's not very good. I'm going to say it's pretty good. It's just, I wanted a Roman candle and it's a sparkler. I wanted this thing to explode. I was so sure it would by the way that Tina builds to it. And then when it just ends up being, I mean, I'm like, I don't understand what happened to the song. They forgot to write a chorus. You hear that sound you just made? That is how the song sounds to me, and I don't understand how you could use the words pretty good with what sounds like a strangled cat. Yeah, well, you didn't like Goldfinger, so I'm going to leave it at that. But I will agree with you guys on one thing. This opener's awesome. The graphics, watching them take down the iconography of the Cold War and Lenin and Stalin and Hammer and Sickle, all that stuff is great. Seeing the Bond women bring down the USSR. Yeah, this may be my favorite credit sequence. Oddly enough, I don't know if you would have been happy with this, but Ace of Base was the original choice for this. I don't know if you remember the Swedish reggae pop group of the early 90s. Hell, I have two of their albums. <laughs> I knew that you would. Well, you can go back to that second album and hear the track The Juvenile and just replace the words juvenile with GoldenEye, and that was their effort. But oddly enough, their record label, I mean, this has got to hurt, their record label told them not to do this movie because Bond might hurt their image. Ouch! That That's how uncool Bond was in 1995. Ace of Base was too cool for them. I'm not sure their effort was that much better than what Tina did. It's kind of like if you ever wanted to hear ABBA do a Bond theme, it's kind of what it was. I just think that if they're updating for the 90s, why didn't they get an artist who was popular in the 90s? Because they wanted a Shirley Bassey. Because they wanted somebody that could do Shirley Bassey for the 90s. And unfortunately, Tina's voice is just not as strong as it used to be. Uh, Tina, maybe 10 years ago, could have really done this song more justice than she's able to now. And you said it yourself, she had a resurgence in the early 90s. And also, I think there's a classic element to Tina Turner that this is still Bond. So they're making it new for the 90s, but they're still very much showing us in this movie that the classic Bond can still work. There is still classic Bond, even though we're updating him. Well, this isn't simply the best, and it'll be forgettable like most of the rest. This is the theme of the movie, though. This really is, can we do what we did before in this decade? What can we extract? What do we leave behind? It's Bond at the Crossroads. And I do feel like the first 20 minutes when we're reintroduced here in Monte Carlo with Bond, I feel like it is just a cavalcade of iconic moments. It's like girls, chases, casinos. He drops the Bond, James Bond, shaken, not stirred, all that stuff. They are doing everything to remind you of Bond's greatest hits. What is with this opening car chase? Does it make any sense that he's chasing Famke Jensen before he knows who Anna Top is? in this opening scene. It's just this wild coincidence that he just so happens to be flirt racing with the woman who would be the henchwoman for the film. She may have been following him is the way that I took it, but why she would be doing that 
I, no, I have no idea. There were four people that worked on the script. I can tell you that much. There is really no reason why this scene is here other than to get Bond curious about this woman so he can investigate her to follow her for the copter later. It really is pretty much he's at the sauna and happens to run into a Spectre agent. It really is simply that. I cannot imagine if 006 knew that Bond was there and he (laughs) knew that he would say, do not go anywhere near this man. We don't want his attention. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm thinking it's just one of those wild coincidences that leads us into the plot. I think in a more traditional more plot, we would have right after the credit sequence cut to the tiger helicopter being stolen. They always do the boat got sunk, satellite got kidnapped, what have you. They always have the luxury after a good opening action scene to take a moment and show us the plot without Bond. Here, because Bond has been away so long, I feel like they want to give us a lot more of Brosnan. They don't trust themselves to get back to Brosnan. They want to sell him heavy and hard here right at the beginning and it takes a while to get into the plot but i'm liking what they are giving us i like that he can be flirting with on the top while at the same time seducing the psychological instructor there to evaluate him i like what they are doing with bond and where they're putting him where they're acknowledging that he is a relic, and this goes very heavily into the next scenes with Money Penny and M and talking about how MI6 has changed. There's a woman at the helm now, but it's still the same old Bond. Right. Gender politics is another thing that has been a big jump in the last six years since License to Kill. I mean, talk of sexual harassment in the workplace, working women becoming CEOs, all of this stuff was culturally a much bigger deal. I think it was a brilliant move to make M. Judy Dench. I didn't know that this was done in this one. I only know Judy Dench, I thought, from the Daniel Craig era. I didn't know she did Brosnan movies. So this was a happy surprise. And I think she's great. I think she's the best M. It was a big deal back when they cast her, and also I believe the head of MI6 at this time, right before this time, was actually a female in real life. That's where they got the idea. But I agree with you, I think she brings a lot of presence to it. I also like that they very much make her a woman, not just a woman who acts like a man. She is a woman. She says a comment, if I wanted sarcasm, I talk to my children, thank you very much. That kind of line speaks volumes to me about the kind of person M is now in this character. I think that scene when she has with Brosnan, when they confront each other, wonderful. The scene when she's introduced, when that guy's bad-mouthing her. Her presence is just insane in this movie, and it was a very wise choice to cast this woman. If they cast another woman in it, I'm not sure it would have worked as well. I don't know who they would have gone with, but they lucked out here. Dame Judi Dench is terrific, and like I said, my favorite M. This is my favorite Money Penny. I like the money penny who gives as good as she gets in this way, where it's this hardcore flirtation. The original money penny, the one who lasted the longest, seemed like a puppy dog nipping at Bond's heels and begging for some attention. I kind of like this money penny a lot. Yeah, she's going on a date. She doesn't give Bond the time of day. I think this is a conscious choice that sends the signal again and again that Bond is out of his element. His old charms aren't going to work here anymore. The world has changed. But then again, they still do with her at the end of the scene, which is really kind of fun. So all that's true, but she wants him to make good on his promises, which was a great little line to throw in there. My favorite part about this money penny is her last name is Bond. Samantha Bond is her real name. I think that's really funny. There's a scene here before he finds out about the helicopter and the whole thing with the Admiral. He's on the boat checking out the Manticore boat, and he uses a towel as a weapon. Very simple stuff, but again shows me how wonderfully intense... And real this guy can be because after he uses the towel to beat the crap out of the guy so efficiently, he dabs his forehead with the towel. Very cute little thing to do. And that's, again, a wonderful little essence of here's the bond we have here going into this 
where it could get a little complicated with the plot on why they're stealing the helicopter, blah, 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 blah. And... What I saw from this was it was a very Jackie Chan move. Jackie Chan had a big hit a couple years earlier, broke through to America with Rumble in the Bronx. I was a big fan of that one. He doesn't use guns. He uses things like coats and towels and brooms and chairs to fight his enemy. And yeah, the toweling himself off, that's a visual one-liner. I smirked at it. It's a nice, more subtle use of humor than something like hit the showers at the end of that little fight or something really lame that Roger Moore would have brought. Let's talk about what's going on on that boat, because Xena on a top. Famke Jensen, I honestly thought this would probably have been my first time ever seeing Famke Jensen in anything. I was mistaken. She was in a Clive Barker movie that I saw theatrically a few months before this, so I saw her twice in the span of two months. I still wouldn't know who she was until she played Jean Grey in the X-Men, but going back, A, she looks nothing like she does today, and B, hottest Bond girl ever? (laughs) Well, certainly the most aggressively sexual Bond girl ever. Even more than Grace Jones, I would say. This one, really, when you have the character actually being able to kill with her loins, I think you've really taken the idea of the bad girl as far as it can go. I mean, more than Octopussy, more than Pussy Galore, more than Mayday, they have really created this femme fatale to beat all femme fatales here with On a Top. She's over the top. <laughs> What's funny is my friend and I who went to see this had a discussion coming out of the theater, and he basically said that Natalia and On a Top represented the two types of women you can choose to date. And who would you pick, Natalia or On a Top? And he was totally Natalia. He'd prefer the safe, easy lay. I personally said, I'd like On a Top, because you saw that guy who died? He died with a smile. If you live, you're victorious. If you die, what a way to go. On a top all the way. Personally, I think there's a lot more Judy Dinches out there in the world, but okay, I kind of hear what he's saying. <laughs> I think she's incredibly hot. I think Isabella Scorcupo is incredibly hot as well, so we can talk about that very soon. But I think what I love about Xenia on the top, not only is the name over the top, just like a James Bond thing is, not only is the character over the top, like we've seen other James Bond villains or henchmen, but she brings back the tradition of a James Bond henchman with some sort of cool quirk, or the James Bond villain that has some sort of cool quirk. We've been missing this for a couple of films, and this movie movie, as we're talking about, brings back some of the elements of James Bond as well as modernizing it. So she gets an orgasm out of killing somebody. We've never seen that before. That's a very new thing for James Bond. Very 90s kind of thing to put into there. He wouldn't be able to put that in another era of James Bond. But at the same time, it works. We all buy it. She's choking this guy with her legs. So it's just a great balance again of new and old. And man, is she fun to watch in this movie. She is having so much fun. If she's not even talking in a scene, you just watch her in the background, and she's doing so much. She's fantastic in this movie. But I do have to call bullshit because I was surprised that there was a person named Goldfinger. There were real Goldfingers out there and some of these other names. On a top, I cannot find any proof that on a top is a real name, Russian or otherwise. No, it's not a real name. They clearly just wanted to show her aggressiveness in her name. She's on top. She is the most fun of the movie, which is not to say she's the best part of the movie, but she's the part of the movie that carries the most lightness. Uh, Part of the surprise for me with Goldeneye is that it is so reserved here. I do feel like the rest of the movie does not match her energy. There is no other character that has her 
flamboyance, if you were. I feel like we could use a little bit more of this when she's not around. But I definitely have fun when she's here. I love her repartee with Brosnan. I think she makes Brosnan better, frankly. I think they have a little bit of fun with the Russian KGB guy as well. But I think you're right as she is a tops with energy. But they do surround him with a lot of different kinds of characters that bring different kinds of energy to different parts of this movie. I think it's not a completely dour when she's not on the screen. Personally, my favorite character of this movie, then and now, is another X-Men, Boris. Oh, there you go. It's a good example. Played by Alan Cumming, Nightcrawler from X-Men, as well as a ton of other movies. I loved this guy back then, possibly because he was a hacker computer programmer. I loved his, I am invincible! You knew how that was going to end for him, but I thought he was just a very fun presence throughout this entire movie. Again, he's kind of a counterbond. He's equally sexist, equally flirtatious and inappropriate, but... Not as cool. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah, he might be Bond as Russian computer hacker, kind of, but I don't have a big strong feeling here because I feel like he disappears from the movie quite a bit, but I feel like he kind of comes back in the end and is gone almost as soon as he's introduced, but he makes an impression. I'll give you that. He helps create this world when we finally get the plot in motion, when they finally get to what they want to do. Sure, they steal this helicopter, but all that's just a preamble for the fact that they need a vehicle that's going to be immune to electronic pulses because they're going to steal a device that is going to short out cities and wreak havoc on London. That kicks in here when we get to the Russian computer programming station. Do you remember when we talked View to a Kill? When they had the microchip that can resist electronic pulses? Yeah. I had never realized that they had that in a view to a kill, which I, of course I know is the plot of Goldeneye, right? So we're watching that movie. I'm like, holy cow, they borrowed from themselves 10 years later with the plot. Well, that ain't the only time Bond is borrowed from himself. I mean, come on, how many movies? This is number 17. It's impressive that they can keep coming up with new stuff, frankly. What do you guys think of the Goldeneye itself as a plot point? As we're not going to have a big laser in the sky, we're not going to have a weapon of mass destruction per se. It is simply a device that renders all of our technology mute. It seems like, again, a very 90s or more modern type of weapon. I mean, the atomic bomb is so destructive. You have to rebuild the buildings. Everything now was, you know, trying to be a neutron bomb or something. So I saw it as a nice update to the Bond must stop a nuke plot. It's similar enough, but different enough. I didn't have any problem with it because it's honestly such a minor point. What I like about this movie is really it's about the people, not about the machinations. In so many of the previous Bond films, I felt that the villain is kind of irrelevant. The whole point is to stop a nuclear bomb or stop a war between two nations. Here, this is a personal thing. Bond is on a vendetta against this Russian general who he thinks killed his friend. And M is worried about sending him out, thinking it's going to become personal. And then when you find out Alec is still alive, it really becomes personal. It's all about a personal conflict, man versus man, which is so much more interesting to me than man versus machine. And on top of that, they actually give us a chance that they can't have in other James Bond movies when they have nukes in it. They actually show us what the device can do with this action scene at Sevenaya. 
and we see how destructive it can be. And really, that's all you need to know about Goldeneye. And Arnie's right. The rest of the movie is not about stopping Goldeneye. We already seen what it can do and all that kind of stuff. It really becomes about this human interaction between Bond and the girl and Bond in 006. And so what they did here up front with having this scene, which they can never have in a James Bond movie, is give us a kick-ass action scene and a wonderful, cool destruction thing and Xena going crazy, all that kind of stuff. So it can buoy us into the next part of the movie, which has very little action for about 10, 15, 20 minutes and then get into the plot. Normally that might be a problem, but I think I'm agreeing with what you guys are saying. The best parts of GoldenEye are when it's at its dramatic core. When we're getting at what Bond is grappling with. When he's grappling with his sexist past. When he's grappling with the past that he had with 006 and how they thought they were fighting for London, but really the guy had another agenda. All of that stuff is the best part of the movie. I actually think a lot of this action here, while serviceable, certainly the opening was great, but really is beside the point. I find myself forgetting about that and really wanting to focus on character moments. And that's the stuff for me that really works in the movie. I agree completely because, Brock, you talk about this action scene where they fire Goldeneye. Hmm? I hated it. Because it was impressive visually, but you're cutting away from James Bond and the characters we know and the characters we care about and even characters that we've seen before. And we start focusing entirely on Natalia and she's not given a good intro. We don't know why we're focusing on Natalia. I remembered from having seen this movie in theaters, which was the last time I saw it, I remembered that she becomes a part of the plot later, but it was a little whiplash-inducing that she's not introduced organically as part of the plot. This general comes in, on a top comes in, and then Natalia's just left there, and we have scene after scene of her trying to dig herself out of the wreckage and survive. We don't care about you, Natalia. Not yet. If you'd been introduced because you met Bond first and then you went off, we might worry about you. But right now, you're just wasting my time. I disagree. I like this character. I'm getting into her. The way they introduce her with Boris, they're setting us up. And then when we see her in the middle of this whole thing, she's surviving, not getting killed by Xena like everyone else did. She survived. She figured out that. And then we see her try to get out. The whole thing there, I'm getting connected to her. That's the whole point. I am getting connected to her. So when she does factor in later on with Bond, I do care about what happens with her. I think of all the Bond girls we've seen in a long time, I think I care a lot about her. I like the one in Living Daylight. I think they spent a lot of time with Triple X to make us like her, and I didn't like her. I like this woman as an actress i think she's doing a great job i like the way she looks considerably and i like the fact that they give a female lead in a james bond movie a chance to grow as a character even a little bit even just get her feet in the ground as a character as opposed to say a honey writer or even the woman in a for your eyes only whose name is escaping me right now melina they gave her a little bit in the beginning and at the end of it by the middle of the movie her character development's gone. She's almost completely useless for the rest of the movie, but only for the beginning part does she have something to do. Here, they're setting her up to have a reason to be around for the whole movie. I like her. I like the fact that she got a movie better than Exorcist the beginning. We've seen this chick before. Ooh, she was in a Rennie Harlan Exorcist movie. And yes, she's much more enjoyable here. I agree with you. What these early scenes are meant to do is show that she doesn't need a bond to rescue her. She's self-sufficient. She can crawl out of the rubble herself. And then she will get into the plot with Bond and be sort of more of an ally. I kind of agree that I don't care about her plight as much as I want to know what Bond is going to do because it is a James Bond adventure. We're never going to see the Bond girl as a total equal, I don't think. I mean, she's not going to have a spinoff, let me put it that way. But I do like her. I do think she's beautiful. I do think that she's a great counterpoint to Onatop. 
I don't think it helps, though, that her introductory scene, she is so overshadowed by the charisma of Alan Cumming. And you mentioned we see her in The Exorcist. Yeah, that and Reign of Fire, and we never see her again, versus Alan Cumming, who would go on to have a very storied career on stage and screen. She's just outclassed in this movie. And you say she's attractive, Brock. I've seen better in Bond. I see better in this Bond. She's plain for a Bond girl, which means she's stunningly beautiful. She's not memorable, and I think she's simply outmatched in skill, in charisma, and in looks by Alan Cumming, for Christ's sake, let alone Famke Jensen. <laughs> well, we disagree. I like her a lot. I think she's exact opposite of everything you just said. I think Alan Cumming, though, has a lot of charisma, and talk about over the top. He's doing that, and it works because she's not doing that. You see what I mean? Like, you have Xenia on the top, and you have Boris, and you even have Robbie Coltrane all going big because you have Brosnan and this other woman not going big, and Sean Bean not going big. And it works because they counterpoint each other. I thought Alan Cumming actually was a sleazeball. It made me like her more that she had to work in an environment and thrive with this guy sending her passwords with lewd exchanges. I think you guys like Boris a lot more than I did. I think Boris works for the story they're telling, but I didn't want a whole lot more of him than what we're given. I know that he's in on it. Let me put it this way. I don't know if we're supposed to think that's a surprise or not. When the helicopter lands, he disappears. We don't see that he's captured because we don't see that he's captured, I assume that he's in on it. So when Natalia gets out and contacts him, I know that he's going to lure her into a trap. And indeed he does. I knew he was in on it when he was posting naked pictures to the internet in 1995. <laughs> Again, we all know this movie's plot is predictable. Absolutely. But are they telling the story pretty well? Yeah. So... They got a small pass that way is that what they're doing with a predictable plot is enjoyable to watch. Now, you mentioned Coltrane. He didn't make much of an impression on me, but the one I really liked as far as the truly minor forgettable characters is one who I was a little pissed was cast the way he was because didn't we see Joe Don Baker die in just the last freaking movie? Two movies ago. All right, whatever. Well, he married into the Broccoli family, so he gets a role in this movie. Ah, I was wondering who he had to do in order to get in this. <laughs> well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, honestly, I think he kind of works because I think it's funny when America gets represented in these kinds of movies. I think that they tend to find the icon of the day for who the American president is. Jack Lord looked like Kennedy to me in Dr. No. I think Joe Don Baker has got a little bit of the Bubba Clinton kind of vibe to him. He is a foreigner's idea of what an American is. He's a less offensive J.J. Peppa, and I think that that's kind of how he's played here, as sort of the rube that helps a little, but ultimately he's late to the party, he doesn't really save the day, Bond really doesn't need him, he would have figured it out on his own. He's a helper, but at the end of the day, England is better than America. That's kind of how it comes through in Bond's relationship with Jodan Baker. See, I felt that Jack Wade was like... J.J. Pepper and Felix Leiter had a love child because he's like the perfect mix. He's got that kind of rubish nature, but yet still feels competent. And it's not so over the top that you're nauseated the way J.J. Pepper does. And yet he's equally as ineffectual, but yet seemingly knowledgeable as Felix Leiter. It's like two in one. And, and this is a mashup that worked well for me. I dislike this character. 
I understand everything you're saying, and I understand why they're doing it the way they're doing it. I think both of you are dead on in your assessments of them. I didn't enjoy the performance at all. I think Robbie Coltrane made much more of an impression on me, possibly because he is an ex-KGB agent and James Bond of that kind of thing. But the way that Coltrane delivered his lines was less obvious. I kind of felt that Baker here, except in this first scene, which I thought he was great, in the later scenes, especially like in Puerto Rico later on in the movie, everything he was saying, I was thinking, can we get another take of that, please, Joe? Thanks. Because it felt like just a blasé way to say things. He had a chance to continue the momentum he had in that first scene when he was talking about the stiff-ass Brit that didn't continue the rest of the movie when we saw him. And I find he's just a weight on this movie that is unneeded. I, in fact, would have preferred if the character wasn't here because he left that bad taste in my mouth after the first scene. Don't get me wrong. I would have preferred One-Armed Lighter to come back and keep that continuity. But if we're going to have this kind of J.J. Pepper humor, the Rube American, I think it's done far better here than we've seen it in the past. And we've seen it so many times in the past. But this whole time, as we float in and out of these supporting characters, I'm waiting for when Sean Bean's going to come back. I mean, to me, that's the shoe I'm waiting to drop. We know he's coming back. We know that there's this mafioso called Giannis, and, you know, Janice is a two-faced figure. I know it's got to be him. I got a little confused at first. I don't know if you guys remember, but there's a character they introduced called Mishkin, who's got facial hair. He's kind of linen-esque. I thought that was Sean Bean for a while. I actually thought he was part of the Soviet government. I got confused when we actually meet the real Sean Bean right smack dab in the middle of the movie after On the Top is forced to bring him to the junkyard. That was the surprise of it. Not that he was coming back, but that it was him and not Mishkin. And then this is, of course, the scene where we really get into the whys. Why did Alec betray Her Majesty? You know, he says in the beginning, let's do it for England. Well, we find out that he's not English. He's a Cossack. Now, that was a incredibly clumsily inserted bit of history, because during those scenes with Coltrane, Coltrane starts going off on a history lecture about the Cossacks. And I'm sitting there like, what are you talking about? What does this have to do with anything? I don't understand the metaphor. It just felt so expository and pointless. And then it comes up that Alex and Cossack, I'm like, oh, so they rightly assumed I'm a dumb American who knows nothing about Cossacks. And so they had to find a poor way to put it in the dialogue. Okay. I enjoyed this stuff, though. I admit it's expository heavy, but that's okay. Like I said, the best moments for me are the moments where characters are talking to one another. I like that scene of Robbie Coltrane threatening to give Bond a limp for the limp he gave him and giving him this information. I think it's really cool to think that this is all tied back to World War II, which is where the Cold War started really freezing up. You know, I think it's cool that they're sort of tracing that history and this is about the start and the fall of that empire. I think all this stuff is neat just from a writing standpoint. I agree with you, Stuart. I think it really is fun. I think that Robbie Coltrane did the best he could with expository dialogue, and I enjoyed the interchange between Bond and the ex-KGB, ex-enemies now learning to work together. I felt it was also right in the theme of the movie. As far as the history thing, a cool little tidbit, originally, in the original draft of the script, or one of the original drafts of the script, it was going to be Bond's mentor, not peer, who was turned, and Bond had to take out. Please tell me played by Sean Connery. They were gunning for Anthony Hopkins. And so when that fell through and they made him his peer, this is what they point out as one of those things that never got taken out of the script, the connection to World War II. If the man was older, it might have made a little more sense. But since they do tie it back with his family and things, they kind of made it work. But this guy seems to have a real knack for his family, a real connection to his family that we don't really see a lot in other Bond villains, I guess. 
Talk about expository dialogue, though. The scene when the two of them confront each other in the graveyard, when he talks about Bond's family, you had the luxury of your parents dying in a climbing accident. I felt, my God, that's expository dialogue. Well, albeit interesting for me as a James Bond fan to hear some background on James Bond, that whole scene was full of clunky lines, and I wasn't a fan of Sean Bean's line readings completely either. But it was an interesting enough scene because these two friends are confronting, and I think Bond performs better in reaction to Sean Bean, but makes the scene work as well as it does. Yeah, I, I like this stuff. I mean, this is the stuff you want. I didn't know that about James Bond's parents dying in a climbing accident. And then that makes me think, well, maybe that's why they got all this bungee stuff going on in here. I'm really thinking that this one is more tightly woven as a drama, as a character piece, than any Bond I can really think of. And that's what's impressive about it. When we get back to the action set pieces, when they go, oh yeah, we got to do a James Bond thing, and they shoot Bond with a dart and then put him in the helicopter and outrunning missiles and all of that, to me, that's that's just the less interesting stuff. I don't care about the movie in those moments. I feel like that's the stuff I'm just kind of getting through until I can get to the next expository scene. I like the expository dialogue scenes. I like the character scenes. I don't like the exposition. I don't like all of these data dumps going on, and I just feel they're poorly written. But sometimes expository scenes give you a bigger payoff at the end, right? And you know that. And I think it's sometimes you got to wade through this stuff to get the payoffs later. I agree with you. It could be better done and better said, especially with Sean Bean in the scene. But I'm willing to give it to them because so far I'm having a good time and I want to see where they're going with it. And I think where they go with it is worthy of sitting through the exposition. I do agree with you, though. It makes no sense that you shoot James Bond in the neck with a dart at this point. Why don't you just shoot him? Yeah, you just kill him dead. This is a classic Bond villain mistake. We've seen it time and time again. Let me tell you what I'm doing and then knock you unconscious so that you can escape. Great, great plan. Good job. He's trying to kill all three birds with one stone with destroying the helicopter, the girl, and him in that one accident. And that's all fine, well, and good. Well, my favorite part of that scene is when Bond makes a joke about him all tied up and he says halfway through the joke, uh, never mind. <laughs> like, <laughs> loved it because it's such a great Brosnan Bond moment that he understands that there's a time for action, a time for quips, and even himself like you know what not right now the only thing i felt about that is i'd been getting such originality out of this and in that ejection scene it just felt taken right out of die hard 2 which helped me crystallize that i see this almost as die hard with a satellite this is very die hard with a vengeance to me this is the new way of taking bond in the 80s they tried to take roger moore and do an indiana jones well now they're going john mcclain and it's working because of who they cast. I would have to go back to Die Hard to know for sure, but you're probably right. Die Hard movies were the most influential action films of the late 80s, 90s. That's no doubt that they were thinking about those films when they were crafting this stuff. And the second half is where the action really kicks in. And Brock, you were talking about how when you were younger, you couldn't watch movies with your brain off at this point. I was at the same time. My friend and I were sitting there and virtually made a drinking game in the theater during this tank chase, which is excitingly fun, but how his head pops in and out like a freaking whack-a-mole. <laughs> what was the drinking game? A sip of Coke every time his head popped out? Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's out, it's in, it's out, it's in. It just depended on the shot. It was completely inconsistent. Talk about a diehard scene. This whole scene in the library before he gets in the tank is certainly very much that. And it's very enjoyable to watch. I love the scene between Michigan and Bond with the you were talking about the lost art of interrogation. Loved that scene. Love it every time I watch it. Talk about great characters and dialogue. Great character acting going on. Terrific. And then the tank. This tank scene, I'm not sure if you guys noticed this, but when the tank bursts through the wall, it's the first time you hear the James Bond theme in the entire time. 
And boy, is that a great place to use it. And they use it sparingly throughout the rest of the Chank scene. But they don't really use the James Bond theme all that much in this movie. They have this weird soundtrack going on. And I love the fact that they burst it out here in this movie, in this first big centerpiece chase of the movie, right near the middle of the movie. We're ready for it, and it's perfect timing. So not only is the chase fun, not only is Brosnan fun in it, not only is it crazy that they're having a tank in St. Petersburg, but the music also is there to make it just so much fun to watch this chase. The thing with the music was that they started it prematurely, and he's on the run, and they play the James Bond theme, and I'm like, well, that's kind of lame. They're using the James Bond theme, and he's just dodging bullets. And then the tank comes, I'm like, oh, okay. But I thought they started it just a few stanzas too early because it confused me. Why are they using it now? They didn't hold it until the reveal of the tank. I noticed they used it because I absolutely deplored the rest of the score of this movie. You called it out. What is with this weird, funky... What were they doing with this one? Who is Eric Serra? I looked him up, and I guess that he scored all of the Luc Besson movies, who did a very flashy, cool French spy kind of thing with La Femme Nikita and Leon the Professional. Maybe they even wanted him to direct this thing. I don't know, but this score is all kinds of crazy. It doesn't work. And so when I hear the Bond theme here, it is like a breath of fresh air. It reminds me that a classic can still work. Don't try to be so hip, Bond. Your old songs are better than this new stuff. I understand they had to reinsert the Bond theme into this scene because what he had scored for this chase, the producer said no. They should have kept saying that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think a lot of it doesn't work. Towards the end, they have more traditional music. Like that whole car chase talked about with Xena and the woman who's evaluating him. The boop a doop a doop a doop a doop a doop a doop It was like Tron. You know, I just <laughs> I don't understand why they did that. But if I have a big complaint about this movie, that's it, is the music is unmemorable and, and not nice. You see, during this time, movie scores were really going to that sound, though. And I was liking a lot of them. I mean, if you think about some of the contemporary films that came around the same time, maybe a little before, maybe a little after, but you look at, like, the techno kind of scores that were coming in and things. I mean, Bond is certainly not appropriate for some of the harder Rob Zombie and KMFDM kind of stuff that would be in a lot of movies, but trying to keep contemporary. But yeah, here, this was like a Casio keyboard gone berserk. I seem to remember not minding it back in the day when it first came out, but on subsequent viewings over the years, it really keeps sticking out to me as I like it less and less and less. It's my least favorite score, and that includes Never Say Never Again. But the tank scene's a lot of fun. I love how it ends with the train and the train hitting the tank and the tank firing at the train. He must not care too much about saving Natalia because he fires a freaking tank at her train. But it all is just a stalling tactic to get to the lair. And I'm surprised that in the 90s, the evil guy still has an evil lair. But yes, it's an underwater satellite base. And it's the first time this whole movie that I go, all right, how'd they build that? How'd they get that there? Did they build it under the water? How did nobody know that they moved this football field-sized satellite into Cuban water? Did the water displace when they put it in there? How does this go? It actually exists in Puerto Rico, the actual dish. But for the purpose of the movie, how the villain got this built? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I have a little more logistical questions. Not that these are the interesting parts of the movie, but okay, we're told that there's two satellites and both of them are controlled by Goldeneye. And so what I'm wondering is everyone's running around trying to get Goldeneye back. Why not just blow up the satellites? Problem solved. The end. They can keep their dish. They can keep their little thing. They can do whatever they want. They can't fire their electronic pulse beams. It seems to me like they don't need James Bond really for this adventure at all. There should be a self-destruct on those satellites. I can answer that question. They don't know there's a second satellite. Mishkin, during the interrogation scene, 
finds out for the first time, and he's the Russian Minister of Defense, right? He finds out that there is a second satellite for the first time. So only Oromov, Sean Bean, and them, all those people, know. Even James Bond and MI6 don't know there's a second satellite. Okay. But once you did know, I mean, aren't they easy to shoot down? I would think so. But maybe not. You would have to think that they're sending James Bond after Goldeneye, that someone has to suspect there's another satellite, and yes, they should look. Otherwise, what's the point? But they said, find out who stole Goldeneye, what's he going to do with it? They don't know. Moonraker aside, I think shooting things down in space is hard. (laughs) Well, there's not a team of highly trained astronauts who have laser guns on call on a space station ready to fly up instantly to fight? Exactly. I love going to Cuba. I wish we had spent a little more time here, honestly. We spent so much time in Russia, and that's where we needed to. But Cuba's got a history with Russia. I'm glad that this is the climax. I'm glad we get to somewhere that has a different vibe and feel, and it does soften Bond up. This is where he gets to have sex with Natalia, and she calls him out as being cold, and they start to dethaw the Cold War together. I like the, uh, have you checked her out? Head to toe. Great stuff. All these Puerto Rico scenes do work for me, except for the Jack Wade, as I mentioned earlier. And when Brosnan says, no wonder we didn't see it, when the water goes out of the dish, I'm like, come on, you see the lake, you have to know, you're James Bond, how do you not know it's under there? Come on! Plus, Caribbean water is very, very clear. I mean, you would be able to see it, but I guess if it's the size of the whole lake, maybe you wouldn't. I don't know. I don't care. It's James Bond. We like a rational, crazy plot twist when it's a cool layer, and this is an okay layer. It's a pretty good layer. Yeah. It's a throwback, though. It's straight out of all those old films with its multi-layers and everything. All it needed was a giant globe. I sensed that they were hesitant here. I really felt like they were afraid to go too big. They were afraid that they would wind up making Brosnan look ridiculous if they went for these really big set pieces that James Bond is known for. This is a reserved James Bond. It does only half get us there. And I say that they should have been more bold. I think on the top and the satellite dish popping out are the stuff that I really, really like. Honestly, my favorite part of the end all comes down to a pen. This entire ending, and I just absolutely love the fact that the whole thing is all about Alan Cumming and his nervous tick and how many times will he tap that pen. It's simply the most fun because it feels natural. The movie knows you know. It's not trying to pretend like you forgot the cue scene earlier on. It's all playing up. What will happen? And when will that pen go off? And that's just a lot of fun, the way it's filmed, the way it's edited, the way the actors portray it. It's my single favorite part of the whole climax. You're dead on. They really set it up brilliantly and earlier in the movie and then have it pay off here is great. There's actual tension in there. You can see Brosnan counting <laughs> while he does the clicks. It really is fun. The only complaint I have about the whole pen thing is, Arnie, that he sticks it in her face right at the time he's supposed to so Brosnan can flick it away because it's almost a cheat because if imagine Boris was still in the chair clicking it, he would have to dive away and he might have gotten caught in the blast. You know what I mean? But it works completely. It's so much fun because of the tension it builds up. Yeah, I agree. It would have been better, despite the fact that I actually wanted Boris to live and get his own spinoff series, but it would have been better if the pen blew him up when it went off the way it blew up the mannequin early on. You know, the writing's on the wall, haha. But instead, we kill him differently later. What do you guys think about the way they took out on the top? I gotta say, I kind of felt she got a little ripped off on that. Agreed. I thought of you because of Apocalypse Now, because of the homage to Apocalypse Now when he looks up at the helicopter and the whole thing. I thought, oh, Stuart's going to like that. I thought when they squeezed between the thing and his stupid line about always like the good squeeze, I thought even the one-liner could have been a little stronger there. I thought they dispatched with her pretty weakly. I'd say only this. I was surprised that he took her out. I honestly thought they would have given it chick on chick. That's tend to be how they want to do these things. You know, Mayday turned good and died and sacrificed, or they have chick versus chick. I think it's always a little weird when 
Bond is fighting a woman. So that was a surprise to me. But that said, he didn't really fight her. He attached something to her and let it happen. It would have been very different if he was punching or shooting her. It's more uh, allowing it to happen kind of thing. But yeah, it just didn't fit. It wasn't ironic enough. We should either be laughing at a joke or cheering that she's dead, and I was neither. Yeah, it felt very obligatory, but I too was just happily surprised that it wasn't Natalia. Not that that means Natalia gets to do much of anything, but I thought that Anna Top would have mopped the floor with Natalia. Hey, she does get to fool your guy Boris and change the passcode. She does do a little bit here. She's flying a helicopter to pick him up after he dumps Sean Bean onto the dish. It's not a big role, but for Bond women, she does a lot more than most of them. You mentioned Sean Bean falling on the satellite. That's my favorite kill of this ending. You talk about Onatop being dispatched, but you get this emotional final fight between Bond and Alec, and Alec's about to fall, and Bond catches him and saves him, and then he's like, for country, and he goes, no, for me, and lets him die, and that is back to the hardest we've seen Bond. Back when, in Dr. No, Bond just kills that guy in cold blood, or back in for your eyes only when Roger Moore kicked the car off the side of the cliff. This is truly showing the coldness, the hardness, the coolness, the lethalness of James Bond, and I love it. Well, setting a guy on fire with a lighter last movie certainly is the same kind of kill as well. I agree with you, Arnie, and also the way that Brosnan delivers the line, no, for me. Like, it was just awesome, because it was exactly the right thing, and you were rooting for Bond right there to use his license to kill. But it was more than that. It was revenge. It was murder. It was cold. It was just the essence of why I enjoying this performance. I was right there with Bond in that decision of why he did it. It was great. Okay, guys, I'm glad you guys are loving it. I am not quite sold. I think that's what I've been saying here. I didn't get this incredibly intense thing from Bond. I got it from the scene the way it's written. I didn't get it from Brosnan, but I didn't think it was bad either. I'm still with him. I want to keep following him through the next three movies. I don't even remember the two that I've seen very well, so let's see if it holds up. But I'm just not as convinced as you guys are that Brosnan is selling the danger the way that Dalton did, or Connery. The final thing I like, the final joke, I don't think I would have enjoyed it had we not done this retrospective, but at the very end, Jack Wade shows back up, and much like so many other Bond films, the Marines come to save the day and do the big fight, but they show up too late. I think that's much better than when they show up and do the big fight and Bond is having the climax in the middle of it. Agreed. I thought that was a funny joke as well and unexpected. It kind of gives Jodan Baker nothing to do, but that's sort of the point. America's ineffectual. Leave it to Bond to save the world. Uh, that's the message that gets sent on his first mission in the 1990s. But as much as I enjoy that end joke, it's inversely how much I dislike the end credit song here. I did not think we would get a song in a Bond movie worse than Never See Never Again. But here it is. What is this Peter Gabriel tries to sing his way out of throat cancer song? They're called Experience of Love. Please explain this to me. Eric Sarah, the guy who did the music for this whole movie wrote this song and sang it. Oh, that just seals the deal. That's perfect. <laughs> the guy with the shittiest score sings the end theme. Well, you'll know where this lands on the list. I didn't even listen to the whole thing. I was like, wow, this is really terrible. And fast forwarded to see if it just said James Bond will return or if he would return in something. And that was the end of it. It was bad. But it's no worse than the most end songs of most movies. I mean, usually end credit song blow. 
Actually, I think this is probably the worst end credit song I've ever heard. I love James Bond movies, but this is a pretty darn bad song. And I don't understand why it's in a James Bond movie. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I didn't like GoldenEye all that much, the song. But I dislike, actively dislike, this song in a James Bond movie. So... Much like Arnie just said, whenever I watch this movie, I turn it off. <laughs> I don't even bother. I just turn this thing off when the helicopters leave because this song is just a downer for this movie we saw before it. Yeah, you mark my words, there won't be a worse song when I rank all the Bond songs. This will be at the very, very, very bottom. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Goldeneye? Stuart. I'm happy to be on board here. I'm glad to see that every Bond is getting at least one recommend from me, or at least every Bond but David Niven. I think that this one is very solid. A little remote. I'm feeling like it's a little tentative. You know, I like that they're playing with the fact that Bond is unsure of his place in the world, but I do want to see him grow in future adventures. I do want him to assert himself a little bit more. I do want to see the character that you guys are describing as here. I don't see it quite fully emerged out of the cocoon yet, but Brosnan is not bad. And I'm happy to see that because I've just never taken to his persona before. I think that this one ranks with the solid bonds. You know, I think that this is maybe not as good as Living Daylights or Honor Majesty, but I put it there with For Your Eyes Only. I think it's a better first installment than Live and Let Die. Certainly better than Dr. No. Yeah, congrats. This is a solid recommend. Arnie. A strong recommend. And I think that while it may not be the quote-unquote best James Bond film we've seen in this retrospective, because I don't feel it was the most ambitious or the most inventive, it was the one I enjoyed watching the most. So, compared to all the others, it is invincible! It's not the one I respect the most, but this is a movie I will watch again for fun whenever it comes on. It's that good. I enjoy the action. It's well choreographed. It's well filmed. It's well staged. This movie is just a hell of a lot of enjoyment. Beginning to end. It really, other than Natalia, I don't care about you while your satellite blows up scene, this movie didn't have a single lull for me. It was completely engrossing. I don't even remember liking it this much when I saw it in theaters, but seeing it now, this one is the movie I have enjoyed best. This film right here makes Brosnan my favorite Bond. Now, I know where we're going. I don't know that when all is said and done, he will remain my favorite Bond, but as of this movie, he is my favorite Bond, and much like On a Top with a Good Kill, this movie gets me off. Strong recommend. Well, I'm going to flat out say it. If it's not in top three, it's definitely top five for me in James Bond. I absolutely love this movie. This is a James Bond movie I go back to time and time again. I can't tell you how many times I've watched this movie. This movie has everything, practically everything I want in a James Bond movie. It has a great James Bond, like the James Bond. I like the villain. I like the henchman. I like the girl. I like the gadgets. I like the action. I like the plot. I like everything about this movie except the music. It's just everything is here for me. When I look for a James Bond movie, this is it. We didn't talk about the Q scene, but how much fun was that Q scene to watch? It was quick. It was fast-paced. It was edited well. That last joke with, hey, that's my lunch, boom, right into the airport. It understood what it was doing. Brosnan understood what he was doing from the get-go. He gave us a man who can kill, who knows how to crack a joke. And my James Bond, a James Bond I enjoy watching, is able to do both. Now, as Arnie just said, I know where we're going. And what I love about James Bond is that this character is strong enough to be interpreted different ways. And what Brosnan is showing me here makes me feel like I want to watch more James Bond. 
because I am enjoying what he's doing so much in this movie. So this is one of my favorite James Bond movies of all time. Where it's going to end up in the rankings when we're all said and done here, we'll find out. But definitely way up there for me. One of the strongest recommends I've given so far in this retrospective series. GoldenEye is a winner for me. Just to be clear, since Honor Majesty was also an intro to a Bond, would you say this one works better than Honor Majesty? Well, what's great about this movie, Stuart, is like on Her Majesty's Secret Service, what we liked about that so much was we saw Bond with emotion and it has caring about something or someone, right? Here we have that with him in 006. So there's that element there that we don't get a lot. It's not brooding like we had with Dalton. So it's it's a different kind of emotional connection that we haven't seen since then. And sure, it's a very apt comparison, those two movies. I feel like it's the same movie, except instead of getting a wife, he loses a partner. I feel like, yeah, it kind of is, maybe by design, a way of calling back to that one. I didn't recommend On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I recommend this one. I think that statement stands for itself. So we're back to two a week, guys. I mean, it's a Friday and our donation drive is over. So we now have room to run through the rest of Bond two a week starting next Tuesday. Yeah, it's like the sprint in the home stretch. And because this box set is taking longer to make than I thought, we're <laughs> continuing to take <laughs> platinum donations through the end of November. We actually got a lot of requests from people asking us if we would extend platinum donations into November. So yes, yes, we will. So if you are wanting to buy somebody a Christmas gift of over 200 movie reviews, if you want someone to buy you a Christmas gift of all of our previous donation series, head to our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top of the page, and find out all about our platinum donation series and Because of the devastation of Hurricane Sandy and the request from listeners on the East Coast, our Living Dead donation retrospective is still open till the 15th of November. You can find out all the details at the banner at nowplayingpodcast.com. And while at nowplayingpodcast.com, while you're clicking those banners, also click through to forums and you can discuss this film with other listeners. You can click through to Facebook and follow us over there or Twitter. Also, go to iTunes and leave us a positive review so other fans like yourself can find us. We really would appreciate if you leave a positive review for us over there so we can get the word out about James Bond as we are going into the home stretch, as you two just said, as we're barreling towards Skyfall at this point. I can't wait. This movie looks so good. I just, please, nobody spoil it. I know it's out in Europe, but I just, I can't wait till it comes out next week and we'll be back on tuesday with our next james bond retrospective review now playing will return with tomorrow never dies that sounds like a dismissal i was rather looking forward to breakfast thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing james bond retrospective series job's done the bitch is dead At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. 
you should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep now playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. I have to think signing a contract that says you'll never play James Bond is kind of like if somebody came to me and said, Arnie, we're going to give you this thing, but you must promise you can never be in Star Wars 7. Well, they're not even making it. Sure. What the hell hope would I have of that anyway? Gone are these terrible times of two books smushed together like a terribly mismatched s'more. Most people like s'mores, Arnie. Most people want marshmallow and chocolate together. I don't think the comparison holds up. Well, you mentioned the credits. I didn't know who Sean Bean was. I've seen him in a couple other things, but... The guy could come to my door and tell me who to vote for, and I would just think he was a door-to-door salesman. Well, he would be. (laughs) (laughs) You're making some really strange similes tonight, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Rephrase. Well, you mentioned the credits, bro. (laughs) (laughs) This mismatched s'more of a show. (laughs) I'm only on my 15th hour of wakefulness. I'm sure you'll get better. (laughs) Wait till hour three. Uh, If I can't stop laughing, it'll be still on the show. I remember watching a movie a few years prior to this called Sneakers with Robert Redford. Love it. Yeah, I like, I enjoy the movie very much. He was in it? No. I don't know if you would have been happy with this, but Ace of Base was the original choice for this. That's how uncool Bond was in 1995. Ace of Base was too cool for them. Well, all they want is another hit, and they can't get it. <laughs> yeah, <them>. exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, who's where now is all well, I got to say. I guess the manager saw the sign. Yeah, exactly. I was trying to work it in. You got it first. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> they had two hits, and they were great then. Welcome back to 1994. She is a great counterpoint to Zenatop or Zenatop. What the hell's her name? On the top. Uh, on, on the top. top. Yeah. Well, uh, she's a. She's a. Well, let me get it right. Uh, so Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Golden Eye? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> That's my horrible Tina Turner. That doesn't sound like Tina Turner. It sounds like Mae West or possibly Phyllis Diller. Phyllis Diller. Well, say what you will about Tina in this. What was with the end song? And we'll be back on Tuesday with our next James Bond retrospective review. Now playing will return with Tomorrow Never Dies. You didn't thank us for joining you, and I was going to say the pleasure was all yours. I okay. That, I, that I haven't said thank you for joining me in a long time. No, I guess you just don't like us. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is, yes. I just, I just, I don't, I, I kind of consider that you guys are, <laughs> you two are the core of the show, so why, why are you joining me? I'm joining you. All right, thank you for letting <laughs> me join you. <laughs> I, I always thought you were going to say something earlier about the, um, so um, this movie is so good that it has taken away the sting of all those bad movies you had to, like the vodka martinis or whatever, that kind of line. No, it's, that, that sting is still there. The wound is still raw. I'm still applying <laughs> ointment to it daily. Ooh, ointment.